Hello and welcome to the Bankers Banking Under Pressure podcast series, exploring how the financial services industry is responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, in addition to dealing with the impact of COVID, banks in the UK are also facing the dreaded Brexit as the country moves closer to the final deadline of 11pm on the 31st of December 2020 without a passporting deal for the financial services in place. I'm Joy McKnight, Managing Editor of The Banker, and my guest this week is John Ahern, who's partner at legal firm Covington. Thanks so much for joining me, John. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Maybe let's talk a little bit about Brexit. What challenges has Brexit uh, created for financial institutions, and how have they been dealing with those challenges? Brexit has created a number of challenges. I mean, most of the interaction between the banking community in the UK and the rest of Europe has been on the basis of, you know, passporting rights, whether it's under MIFID or the CRR or other uh, single market um, directives. And so the challenge has been to work out, can you or can you not continue to conduct business with European clients and counterparties? And if so, um, how, how does that work? Um, what is the access to the European market going to look like in a post-Brexit world. And of course, we're at a point where we really don't know yet whether it's going to be a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit or whether there will be some agreement um, entered before the end of the transition period. Um, and so right now, I think we're in a position of just not knowing. Having said that, however, uh, lots of the UK market participants already have uh, enterprises established in the European Union, which would allow them at least to continue to avail of passport rights under European legislation within you know, the 27 other countries. Uh, the real question will be, to what extent can you intermediate business back to the UK, i.e. back to a third country, sitting outside of the framework of the European Union? And, and that's going to be um, an issue that we're you know, probably going to have to wait to see where that winds up in terms of what agreement, if any, will be established with the European Union. Okay, so you touched on it a little bit there, but you know, how can banks best prepare for a no deal Brexit? Um, and what do you think could be the best possible outcome today? Okay, so starting with the last part of the question, the best possible outcome would obviously be some comprehensive agreement that would allow access from UK institutions to interact with European institutions or investors or, you know, customers generally. The truth is that to the extent that there is interaction already between the UK and um, European uh, customers or investors, it's really typically on the wholesale side. You don't see a huge interest in, you know, UK banks looking to do consumer type or retail type banking business in Europe, not unless they're doing that outside of, you know, or, or with the benefit of a, you know, subsidiary that's established somewhere else in the European Union. Uh, the big business that's done between the UK and Europe is typically with institutional investors or institutional players who want access to the liquidity that's available in the London market, typically. And that business, to my mind, uh, I'm not saying that it goes unaffected, but it's uh, less difficult to do uh, in even a hard Brexit situation because oftentimes European investors or, or clients 
will come on an unsolicited basis to London because they recognize that there is a lot of liquidity in the London market. So whether it's FX or whether it's in near type OTC, you know, swaps and derivatives transactions, asset management, uh, a whole range of things, uh, finance more generally, um, you know, those European uh, counterparties will come to London anyway. So I don't think that, you know, the big issue is going to be whether or not you can conduct business into Europe from the UK as a third country, which would be treated presumably in a hard Brexit situation like every other third country. Rather, um, will it be possible for those institutional players in Europe to continue interact, to interact with, with the London market? And my you know, confident view is, yes, of course they will, just the same way as they interact with Hong Kong or New York or any of the other major financial centers around the world. What regulations do you think are causing the most concern for banks if there are no passporting rights? Well, clearly MIFID, um, the CRR, EMIR, a whole plethora, AIFMD, a whole load of regulatory requirements. I mean, one of the features of European regulation since the onset of the financial crisis has actually been to close the market in Europe somewhat to third country activity. So you'll see that there's much greater emphasis on extraterritorial impact, particularly in things like the AIFMD, for example, where, you know, it, it's pretty difficult to market um, a, a third country alternative investment fund to European investors. Uh, likewise, with MIFID, you know, the passporting rights are, are central to the ability to conduct business cross-border into Europe. And to the extent that you can deal even with the professional end of the market, then the requirements are that there's an equivalence decision, you know, that you have a similar reciprocity in the third country such that European players could play in your territory. And thirdly, that, you know, the protections are pretty much on par with the kind of protections for retail customers in particular that you would have, and indeed professionals uh, under MIFID. So those bunch of regulations, AIFMD, CRR, uh, MIFID, are, and to a lesser extent, perhaps the Payment Services Directive, are um, you know, key in terms of their restrictions on cross-border activity in Europe without the benefit of a passport. Um, my view, however, is that notwithstanding the single market, um, it's always important to bear in the back of one's mind that you know, institutional players in any jurisdiction in Europe are at liberty on an unsolicited basis to deal with players in other countries, um, irrespective of whether they're third country or not. So, uh, but to answer your question, the difficult uh, areas are, are those, uh, you know, investment services under MIFID, banking services under the CRR, fund management services under the AFMD, payment services under the PSRs and the PSDs, um, which will pose a challenge uh, because certainly the, uh, the ground will shift from a position where we had unfettered access uh, to the European markets to a position, particularly in a hard Brexit scenario, where that access is not so unfettered um, and indeed might be quite limited. So, so those are the main regulatory items that would be on my list for issues to be considered. Okay. And then in terms of divergence of regulations, obviously there's some regulations, let's say the EU 
securitization regulation, which mm -hmm. came into effect in January 19. Mm -hmm. uh, but now there's talks of amending that. You know, mm -hmm. what is the latest on that? And then is there a risk of this divergence in terms of uh, regulations between the EU and the UK? The uh, UK has been a significant influence on the direction of European regulation, partly because the London market is such a key financial centre. And so even as a measure of GDP, financial services in the UK is a considerably important component of GDP. That's not true of every other European jurisdiction. So for example, in Iceland, there are other industries um, and agriculture and fisheries and other things that are a, a more important part of GDP. Uh, in major economic markets, such as France or Germany, clearly financial services has a greater level of importance. Um, so uh, from the point of view of divergence, the key influencer being the UK, which, you know, in common with the Commission and you know, European regulators more broadly, has a vested interest in ensuring that we have transparent, properly functioning markets, I think will continue to be an important player. In terms of divergence, uh, it's hard for me to see right now how the UK would diverge at least quickly from the European view of regulatory requirements. Um, that might happen in the process of time. And a lot of this stuff is very political. So, you know, it might be a question of whether the advancement in terms of the EU's uh, emphasis on the uh, capital markets union, where that goes, uh, may have an impact on whether or not there's divergence in London. But I don't see divergence as something that's immediate at all. I, I think that's going to take a long, long time to come. There might be some discrete areas where the UK would be willing to diverge from European regulatory requirements. Uh, and what occurs to me is certainly in the context of alternative investment funds, um, potentially OTC derivatives transactions, clearing. You know, there might be discrete areas where uh, the UK will take uh, a, a how could I describe it? Maybe a more worldview of uh, ensuring that our market here in London is active and functioning and, uh, you know, accessible to the extent it can be, that might drive, uh, you know, a, a divergent view from uh, the position that might be taken from a policy perspective in Europe. Uh, but, you know, that's not going to happen anytime soon. For the moment, I think, if you look at even since 2010, the G20 developments followed by all of the developments uh, post-COVID, you know, in more recent times, there is a large convergence from a regulatory perspective among the key regulated jurisdictions. And I don't expect that to change very much in the short term, at least, or even in the medium term. But, you know, we, we'll see. Again, you know, a lot depends on what the end result of Brexit is going to be, whether it's going to be a negotiated settlement or whether it's going to be a hard Brexit will really play into how all of these issues might uh, develop and emerge over a period of time. Okay, great. I was going to take you on to another area which the which London has really led, which is fintech. Yeah. So London is recognized as a, as a global fintech hub. Um, mm -hmm. First, I wanted to get your opinion 
um, really about the Wirecard scandal, which erupted earlier this year. Sure. You know, I'm wondering whether you think that's um, really going to have a big effect in terms of the regulator's view on the fintech community, whether there's going to be, uh, you know, a regulatory response to that um, scandal. I think the important thing about Wirecard to bear in mind is that this was not a failure of fintech. This was really, in my mind, um, a question of whether or not the payment services firm Wirecard, which was in the middle of the fintech uh, you know, construct, uh, was properly supervised. And um, you know, I've been asked a number of times, you know, is fintech regulated enough? You know, are payment services regulated enough? And the truth is, payment services is very well regulated. You know, there's a very comprehensive PSD2 out there um, which has been implemented, um, which you know has a large number of considerations that protect consumer uh, benefit, and therefore, you know, it's very focused on protection of the consumer. And so, for those that uh, use payment services providers, I think they're very well protected under the current regulatory regime. So the regulation is fine. The problem. Uh, often is that you know fraud number one is very difficult to detect. It's not something that jumps out at you. In this case, Wirecard specifically, it would appear that for a number of years, uh, you know the uh, numbers were at least exaggerated in a manner that escaped the attention of all sorts of people, like auditors, not just regulators. Um, but to answer your question, uh, fintech is not the problem. I mean, fintech is something that regulators need to keep up with from the point of view that they need to understand the technological innovation that's going to shape the nature of mass distribution of financial services you know, going forward. Um, I think in the UK in particular, we're pretty well set up for that because, as you said, the UK is a real leader uh, in this area. And that's why you have at the FCA you know, the sandbox where there's a real focus on innovation and a very big team that focuses on this area. In terms of, uh, you know, market disruption or, you know, customer detriment, ultimately that comes down to a question of how well you actually enforce the existing regulation and how well you monitor regulated firms rather than a question of whether or not fintech is the problem. To my mind, fintech is not the problem. To my mind, you know, where you've got a regulated, heavily regulated uh, part of the industry, then it's up to the regulators to take the tools that are given to them by statutory measures or otherwise and enforce them properly to ensure that, you know, these regulated firms are monitored to the extent they should be, particularly where there's consumer detriment at stake. And you mentioned it there, which is really the leading light of the FCA in terms of creating the innovation and the regulatory sandbox and fostering mm -hmm. innovation in that sense. Mm -hmm. But do you think London will be able to maintain its position as a global fintech hub post Brexit? Because there's other, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's maybe not just the regulatory environment. It's also the, uh, you know, the talent that's needed mm -hmm. to come to London and things like that. I'm pretty confident that it will. Um, the talent, you know, if you think about all of uh, you know, Brexit in the round, uh, for all of the uh, views that suggest that you know London's in peril somehow, or that it's not going to be the same as it was, or it's not going to be you know the hub for financial services more generally, notwithstanding you know not even mentioning fintech, I think uh, 
you know, the truth is it will continue to be a very, very important center um, for a number of reasons. One is English is the lingua franca so that, you know, um, and that that is the lingua franca of, you know, the industry throughout the world. Uh, secondly, English law, being part of a common law system, has a degree of certainty in it, which uh, is not matched by civil law jurisdictions in the same way, because we have a system of precedent, which is binding on lower courts. So there's a degree of certainty that you can be assured of. Thirdly, market contracts such as ISDA, OSLA, GMRA, all of these contracts are either typically New York law or English law governed. So there's a great deal going for having faith in the UK and London as a financial market. In terms of fintech, you know, when the talent is here, it's here. People who, you know, grew up here, you know, for practical reasons, you know, who might now be married with children, you're not just going to up and leave the country you grew up in to go and live somewhere else where you might not speak the language, you know, there might be a big adjustment for your family, your personal situation. I just don't think that's as likely as people uh, seem to think. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite positive that London will continue to be a fintech hub. And it's not just, like you say, from a regulatory perspective, you know, it's a practical issue. And also it's an innovation issue where you have, you know, really state-of-the-art, you know, facilities uh, for fintech development here that you don't find everywhere else. So yeah, I'm, I'm upbeat on fintech. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your insights, John. And thanks to our audience for listening. Keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast, and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcasts. Thanks again. Thank you. <laughs>